The Guardian. Clocks are everywhere. Ticking away on our wrists, our phones and on our microwaves. Reminding us that we're late in our cars and offices and train stations. Beating out time in our town squares and capital cities. They're embedded in pretty much every aspect of our lives. GPS, for example, which can track our locations, but also synchronises all modern infrastructure, from the national grid to telecommunications networks, relies on satellites that house super-accurate atomic clocks flying over our heads in orbit around the Earth. And throughout history, our ability to measure time accurately with different forms of technology has had profound impacts on civilizations and societies. In the 1750s, it was the invention of a timekeeper that was reliable and accurate enough to be taken aboard ships that cracked a long-standing problem in maritime navigation of finding your east-west position at sea using time differences. That, in turn, allowed European naval powers to travel the globe, to colonise other countries and to build empires. It's no exaggeration to say that clocks have shaped the world. These are some of the ideas explored in a new book by writer and curator David Rooney called About Time, which charts the history of civilization in 12 clocks. By looking at any clock or watch that's ever been made, I hope people can start to see through them and see the people behind the face. From The Guardian, I'm Anand Jagatia. And this is Science Weekly. I spoke to David about the book and I asked him how he first became so fascinated with timekeeping. I think I have to look back to my childhood for this. Um, my parents, when I was about eight years old, decided to have a career change and decided to set up as a clock restoration and making business. The dining room was converted into a clock workshop and and I started to sort of grow up around the sound of clocks and the language of clocks and time. Not just the, the objects themselves, it was like the stories that went with them. It kind of stuck with me that there's this connection between objects, machines, mechanisms, and, and stories. And some of those stories could be, could be quite significant. And that kind of connection with the artefacts, with the material culture, has been a part of my life ever since, really. Yeah, and that's definitely something which comes out in the book, this idea that clocks aren't just objects that tell the time in isolation. Actually, they're a way of us understanding history and also our values and our understanding ourselves. The book is, is full of stories, actually, that, that demonstrates that. And I wanted to start by asking you about one of those, uh, which is to do with standardisation. So if I look at my clock now, the time is... 1440. Um, but of course, it hasn't always been agreed upon what the time is. And how time came to be standardised in the UK is a really interesting story that's partly to do with trains and railways, but also basically to do with closing time at pubs. 
Yeah, I mean, this was a challenging research project that, that I had to spend a lot of time in London pubs to try and work out what was going on in this story. It does sound very challenging, David. I'll do what I have to do for in the name of research, Anand. <laughs> I mean, the story of, of standardisation of time seems to be a fairly straightforward one. It goes along the lines of the railways started to be built in the 1820s. So by the 1830s and 40s, they were really flourishing, particularly across Britain. Um, and if you're going to run a railway, particularly one that runs east to west, whose time do you put on the timetables? It's going to be a different local time at every station that you stop at. You can have to change your watch every place. In places like the USA, that was a, a far bigger problem because the lines were longer, covered more time difference. And so the railways in the early decades of the 19th century decided to say it doesn't matter what the real time is, whatever that means, we're going to use one standard time across the whole of our network and it'll just take out the confusion. And they'd usually use the time of the head office of the railway company, which in Britain tended to be in London. So Greenwich time became became a railway time, a standard time across the railways. Now, what what the historians tend then to say is to assume that railway time, standardised, became de facto civil time by about 1855. So almost as soon as the railways had standardised to Greenwich time in Britain, these accounts suggest civil life fell into line with that too. And we all abandoned local time in our towns and cities and villages and went over to Greenwich time. But I just kept finding, as I was doing this research over, over years, I, I kept finding more and more uh, instances where this clearly wasn't the case, where there clearly was an argument about, are we talking about Greenwich time or local time? So you started investigating this, and what happened? All right, so what happened was I was, I was, I was researching a company that sold accurate time signals in London called the Standard Time Company in the 1880s. And I was, I was looking at a list of their subscribers, and they were like banks and clearing houses and major firms, and you can understand why they might want Standard Time. But a quarter of the subscribers were pubs. I mean, 25% of subscribers to this expensive, high-tech standard time signal, which would use the electric telegraph to give you the time, were pubs. And I couldn't understand why until my colleague and I realised, well, it must be something to do with licensing hours. I didn't realise this. I thought the licensing hours were a 20th century thing, a First World War thing, but it was 1872 that the Victorian moralists started to think, we need to curb alcohol consumption in this country, but we're a liberal government. We can't tell people not to drink. Instead, they thought, we'll use a clock to tell people not to drink. So the clock at 11 o'clock or midnight or whenever became a proxy for these Victorian moralists deciding that you'd had enough to drink. And that that was what had genuinely led to standardisation of time in 1880 to Greenwich. And so, of course, I accept that the railways were important in the standardisation of time. But what was more important, I argue, was kind of the Victorian moral zeal to standardise behaviour. That story goes to show something that you come back to a lot in the book, which is that clocks aren't neutral or objective, that actually they're really tied up with our beliefs and our values. And as clocks became more common and they started intruding in our lives they also carried this message about not wasting time and making the most of the time that we have here. 
Yeah, and, and it is easy to assume that that it's fairly modern, and and this sense that you've got to you've got to use time, you, you can't waste it, you've got to be busy and active, feels quite modern. And it was it was Benjamin Franklin in 1748 who 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 came up with the phrase that we know now, which is "time is money," and if, and and that was kind of in the industrial capitalist context, but as a concept emerged from from the religious context not the capitalist context and it was earlier than that the the kind of the 16th century the the english puritans 16th and 17th century who was were thinking about kind of a work ethic as a means of expressing religious devotion started to talk about how time was god's time this sense that you must use your time wisely because if you don't it is God that you are cheating. There became a really powerful kind of mor- moral um, code, and and it came at the it, it came in parallel with the arrival of a horological technology that kind of allowed that moral code to seep into all of our lives, which was the watch, the what we call the pocket watch, and then the kind of the capitalist construct of it in the 18th century, Benjamin Franklin and so on, added to that religious further and now i mean we're surrounded by clocks and it's hard to it's hard to think outside of that idea that you shouldn't waste time carrying on with this theme of time is money one place where that is manifest really is financial markets and today they're regulated by extremely accurate atomic clocks but that's something actually that's been going on for centuries the use of clocks in financial markets is, it started in 1611 in Amsterdam in what can be described as the world's first stock exchange. And when you look at Amsterdam Stock Exchange, pictures of it from 1611, you see the first and kind of only thing you see is this huge clock tower that looms over the centre of Amsterdam, of Dam Square, with a clock um, tolling the hours, but also tolling the start and end of trading. And it was for all sorts of reasons, it was important to concentrate traders in time as well as space. But it was also used to time stamp. In other words, if, you, if you're buying or selling contracts which have some kind of time element, like insurance contracts, for instance, it's really important to know when that contract was executed. And so clocks started to become part of the regulating infrastructure of financial trading. And that's continued uh, to today where super powerful atomic clocks are used to regulate uh, financial markets nowadays. Why do we need clocks that are so accurate and, and so precise? The very latest next generation atomic clocks are good to plus or minus one second in 30,000 million years. And that's twice the life of the universe. So if somehow one of these experimented clocks could have been set running at the Big Bang, at the birth of the universe, which which birthed the universe and all of time and space itself, it would be wrong today by less than half a second. These atomic clocks, which are now embedded in what are now the trading exchanges, which are in data centres around the world, are just astonishing. So like the, if you think there's, there's kind of three ways now to buy or sell, let's say shares, you can do it yourself like a human. You can click your mouse button and buy them online, or you can speak to somebody on the phone. So that's quite a slow way of buying or selling shares. 
you can have what's called algorithm trading or algo trading, where you've got a computer algorithm deciding for you when to buy and sell shares, let's say. And it's happening pretty fast. But then there's a subset of algo trading, which is called high frequency trading or HFT, which is now about 50% of all um, financial trading in the US markets. About It's a little bit less in the UK. So it's a huge market. And what, what, what the HFT traders are doing is each trade is tiny. I mean, it's making a fraction of a cent, but the volume of trade is vast, which means that you can build up a huge profit. Not, not all do, but you can. These buy and sell orders are being executed at light speed by computers communicating with others around the world through fiber optic networks. What that means is that they're trading at fractions of a second down to like a millionth of a second. And it introduced some some problems, which is about regulation again. We're back to Amsterdam in the 17th century, and the clock provides a solution. The clocks that are embedded in these financial data centers have to timestamp a million times per second. And that is astonishing. I mean, you know, these clocks are like the size of a shoebox. And they're all over the world embedded in these data centers that you just walk past. And yet, capitalism and trillions of dollars rests on them and them working well. And as well as measuring time with ever-increasing accuracy and precision and being able to measure smaller and smaller chunks of time with these atomic clocks, you also write about how we need to do the opposite as well. And we need, as a species, to be thinking about much longer timescales than that. And there are other clocks that are designed to help us do that and to think about our future uh, on this planet, really. This kind of speeding up of life and of society and and this increasing, this terrifyingly increasing precision and accuracy of clocks um, kind of comes with a downside. And it's and it's associated with what many people think is is an increasing short sightedness or short termism. In other words, we're, we're focusing so much on now, this instant, that we're not looking into the future far enough and and therefore we're not making decisions now um, that are the best decisions for our future what what if we could make long-term thinking commonplace and ordinary rather than rare so that if we're always thinking long into the future that kind of perspective will will shape the decisions we make now and the argument is that there'll be better decisions i conclude the book with with a clock which no human on earth will see it for 5,000 years, which was a clock buried in a time capsule in Osaka in Japan in uh, 1971 with instructions that it won't be opened until 5,000 years hence. And that's a clock that uses radioactive decay. And in 5,000 years, if uh, there is a human civilization, they might uncover this clock, dig it up, and, uh, and, the, and the clock will come to an end. All of these, they're just helping us think. That's all that I really wanted to do throughout this book is just to help us look at clocks differently and see what they mean and see who's behind them. And so ideas about morality and virtue and and order and control and belief and right and wrong and, you know, life and death. These are really, really big civilization level themes that we should all grapple with. 
And by looking at any clock or watch that's ever been made, I hope people can start to see through them and see the people behind the face. Thanks so much to David Rooney for talking to us about clocks and civilizations. His new book, About Time, is out now. That's it from us this week. As always, we love to hear your thoughts on the show, so if you want to get in touch, do drop us a line. Scienceweekly at theguardian.com. Thanks for listening. See you next time. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.